Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, it's good to be with you today, friends. I've got a question. When you think of being anointed, what comes to your mind? For me, uh, the most recent memory I have of a real anointing was captured in that memorable scene in The Crown. Did you see it? When the young Queen Elizabeth, in the midst of tremendous ceremony, is crowned queen of the British Empire. Let's watch that little snippet of her anointing. And as we do, pay attention to how this anointing evokes the anointings of old. Her hands anointed with holy oil. With thy breast anointed with holy oil. anointed with holy oil. As kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, and as Solomon was anointed king, by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so be thou anointed, blessed, and consecrated queen over the peoples whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Wasn't that great? Well, here's the question for you. When were you first anointed? Now, I know you just watch a scene like that and you think, well, if that's an anointing, I don't think it's happened to me, right? I mean, was there a media frenzy at your anointing? You know, pomp and circumstance? Horse-drawn carriages? Not at mine, either. And yet the question is still there. When were you first anointed? Anointing carries such symbolic power, doesn't it? 
It resonates down through the ages, like in the scene we just saw. For those of us who might be familiar with some of the old Jewish stories, you might recall famous anointings, the anointing of King David, the anointing of Jehu, the anointing of the prophet Elisha, the anointing of Aaron, the priest, with the oil dripping down his beard as a sign of his God-ordained calling, of their callings to speak, to minister, to lead the people of God. As the story rolls along, the prophets begin to talk about one particular man, one anointed one, the Messiah who was coming. As it turns out, Messiah means anointed one. And when it's translated into the Greek, it's translated the Christ. And so Jesus, the Christ, came as a fulfillment to those prophecies. Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one who was ordained by the Father, ordained to be for us what we could not be for ourselves to relate to God in ways that we could not, to reveal God to us, the God that we couldn't see and couldn't know without him, to live among us, to teach and to heal and to proclaim God's kingdom had come, and then unbelievably to suffer the shame on a Roman cross, dying on Passover weekend as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but as we've heard in John, for the sins of the whole world. Well, on that cross, Jesus was crowned the king. King of the whole world, even though most who saw it mocked his coronation. But when he rose again from the dead on the third day, no question remained of his rightful supremacy, of the truth of his anointing. And then Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and would fill us, would fill his followers, would anoint his followers for his continued mission so that wherever they were, he was with them. And so I ask you again, when were you first anointed? John might be able to help us answer this. We're continuing through our series, What Matters Most, as we go through this little letter of 1 John, written by an elderly apostle at this point, but a man who had walked with Jesus, who had sat at his feet, who had witnessed him heal blind eyes and had seen him display these marvelous signs and the glory of God and had watched in horror as he was raised up on a cross and slain by evil, for love. John himself had stood at the foot of the cross. He could remember vividly the drops of Jesus' blood which had dropped down and were pooling at the foot of that Roman instrument of torture. John could still remember the look in Jesus' eyes as he committed the care of his own mother to John himself. He could still remember the sound of Jesus' last words, it is finished, just before his life ebbed away. He'd never forget that. And 
He would never forget the blinding tears, the aching sense of sorrow and loss, but then the unspeakable joy when at the resurrection of Jesus, he was suddenly there and they could feel his vitality, his strength, his power, his aliveness, the very look of his face. They remember, they would never forget his eyes, his smile. He was alive. And so when John sits down to pen this letter, he does so as a man who had been forever marked and forever changed by the living, breathing, once dead, now alive, Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, his risen Lord. Remember how he began his letter? When we, when we, when we hold all of this in mind, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because this is how John started his little letter. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Above all else, John wants his readers, you and I, his friends, his dear children in the faith, to know that this matters most, that Jesus matters most, that what matters most is actually a who. And that's the who he's proclaiming to you, to me, to us. And so in today's passage, we pick it up at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 2 today. John pushes hard back against a brand of false teaching that wants to diminish Jesus, wants to cut him down to size, to deny his anointing, either to dismiss his relevance or replace his centrality with something or with someone else. These antichrists, as John calls them, they seem to think less of Jesus, too little of Jesus, to suggest somehow that Jesus the Christ isn't quite enough. That perhaps this Messiah, you know, isn't really necessary for knowing God or for receiving forgiveness, or for living a life of holy love. And at the very thought of his dearest friend, his anointed Lord, his risen King being diminished or disregarded in any way, well, that just sends John right over the brink. It explains some of the stark language in this letter. It's like a man whose best friend has been slighted. Or a woman whose husband has been disrespected. And John picks up his mighty pen of truth. And he goes to war in this letter against the lies about Jesus. Well, let's walk through that passage today. I hope you have a Bible or maybe you open a smaller screen on the side. Um, There's also a Bible option in the bottom of your chat. You'll see Bible and you can type in 1 John 2 and read Along. But let's, let's go through this. I'll try to keep my comments somewhat minimal, and then we'll see where this takes us in the end. I believe you'll be encouraged. But before we do that, let's just quickly pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now to fill us, each one, as followers of Jesus, as those who are trying to understand who Jesus is, 
whether we're new to faith or unfamiliar with these things, whether we've been following Jesus for a long time, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us today to see Jesus clearly as the one who matters most. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is how John begins. Well, he's continuing in the letter, but in in verse 18, this is how he begins. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Let me explain something really quickly before we continue on. This last hour business, it's important for us to understand it properly. John is talking about the fact that the old age, that the time uh, that was gripped by pre-Jesus, you know, before the rightful king had come and died and rose again, the old creation, as it were, was passing away because the new age had dawned in Jesus Christ. New creation had come. We've talked about this before. There's an overlap of new creation and old creation. There's a gap, and we live in between what is already true, Jesus has come, the kingdom of God is present, and what is not yet true. In other words, old creation still continues. There's still sin, and there's still death. We're in this overlap. When John speaks of the last hour here, and then uses Antichrist to top it off, he is not talking about uh, an end times idea that sometimes has been popularized. In fact, you may have heard things about, well, John's talking about Antichrist and last hour, therefore, he's talking about some beast or some end times Antichrist in that sense. And I just want to tell you that that's actually not what he's talking about here. That's another whole big conversation. But I want us to understand in the context today that it's John's conviction that the disregard And the dismissal of Jesus, who is the rightful risen Lord of creation, who has brought new creation with him into this present age through his death and resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that this anti-Christ rejection of him is a sign, you could say, of the last gasps of a dying age. It's a conflict that's to be expected because this Old age is not going to give up without a fight. And it concentrates its energy and its rejection on the very person who is bringing to an end all that was to bring to new life and recreation all that God desires. And the reality is this last hour that John talks about here extends now down even to our time. In that sense, we've been living in the last hour ever since John penned these words, ever since Jesus rose again from the dead. We're on a clock now that ticks according to a different rhythm of time as this overlap of old and new creation continues. Here's another way to think about it. I want you to imagine a large plateau. You're up in a drone or you're up in a high place and you're watching. As you watch this plateau, you can see a horse that is galloping straight toward the edge of a great cliff. Galloping, 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 galloping. Here it is. It's as though all of history was galloping like this horse, hell-bent on its own destruction, racing, 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 and right up at the last moment, right when it was going to fall to ruin, Jesus came and commandeered that horse 
and pulling its reins like a master horseman, he turns it at the last moment and now gallops this horse along the edge of the cliff. History now races on a razor's edge, right along the edge of old creation and new, the passing age and the one that has come in Jesus. And along that fringe of old creation and new, the Spirit empowers His people to bear witness to this new kingdom that has come in Christ, and the old age fights it at every turn. Along this cliff's edge, there's conflict, struggle, and it's always centered around the person and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that the powers of this age, in whatever manifestation, religion or politics or ideology or just pure, simple idolatry, that we have issues with who Jesus is. We want to reject the truth of who Jesus is, of what he tells us about God, about what he has done for us, of how we need to relate to him, of how we need to repent and turn and follow of what his death and resurrection means to the world and indeed all of creation, what it means for us as people. And that conflict continues today, just as it raged in John's day. And so John wants to get clear with his readers, with his children in the faith, that there's this group of people who perhaps were actually members of his own group at one point, who have bought into this horrific lie about Jesus and were now opposing the truth of who Jesus is. They were downplaying his status as the incarnate son of God. They were diminishing his anointing as God's Messiah. And it seems that these theological fiends, as it were, were claiming some kind of special knowledge, even a special anointing by God to declare mysterious truths that no one else really knew except them because they were in their own special club. You know, truths that John is calling them out on. Truths that were actually total lies. And John wants to pull these smug masks off and stomp them in the dirt. Not only because they are not anointed, they're anti-anointed ones, they're anti-Christs who've set themselves up against the one who is truly anointed, but John also wants to prove that their actions mean that they were never part of them in the first place. In John's mind and heart, the kind of betrayal that they demonstrated means that they could never have possibly met or been part of the true Jesus. So now listen to this, because John goes on, in contrast to these antichrists who are opposing the anointed one, John this goes on to speak to his readers in this very confident way. He says this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. This reminds me of a few weeks ago when we looked and explored, you know, very, very concretely all the things that were already true and how important it was to remember. Well, here it is, another example of that. He says, you, you know the truth. No lie comes from the truth. And then he says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a person 
is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. These are themes John has already been developing so far in his letter, and he hammers them home here. He says, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. What's he referring to? The things they've heard from the beginning? What's the truth about who Jesus is? It's the gospel that John first shared with them. The good news that the life had appeared that God himself had come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, had given his life for us, had died on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and then rose again from the dead. That's the truth they heard from the beginning. He's saying, stick with that. See that it remains in you. And he says, if it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. You see what John's doing here? He's reminding them of what matters most. That is Jesus, he himself, the Christ, the son of the father, the one that they had touched and seen and heard, who appeared and had lived among them and then died and lived again. Jesus, the anointed one. And as people who place their trust in him, they are now in Christ, filled with the spirit of God, each and every person who has come to know and believe and trust in Jesus, by definition, they get in on his anointed status. Why are we anointed? Quite simply because we are in Christ. We are in the anointed one. We share in his life. We partake in his very being, his unique status. Now we are part of it. We're included in him because of what he has done for us. And we trust him in that. See how powerful this is? I hope you can hear it. How this transforms our own identity, our own confidence, our mission in life. You see how dependent this was on Jesus being who God actually says he is, everything hangs on that. You diminish Jesus just one little bit, you know, shave a bit of truth off of him here, you know, chip a few things away from the edge there, downplay his unique relationship with the Father, maybe fudge his perfection a little bit, act as though, you know, we all know Jesus is a really special guy, but not really the anointed Messiah, not really the only one through whom you can know God. Well, if you do that, what John is saying here is not only do you got nothing, you know, no forgiveness, no love, no power, no resurrection, no freedom, no life, but, and this horrifies John, on top of that, you're calling God a liar. You're you're saying, God, what you said about Jesus isn't true. Jesus is, in fact, a fraud. But, but, John says, (laughs) That's what these antichrists are doing. And that's not true of you. He wants to be really clear about that. As strong as he is about these guys, he he knows it's not true of them. You, in fact, John says, you're the very opposite of the antichrists. You are the in-Christs. You are anointed by the Holy One himself. The same one who anointed and commissioned Jesus has anointed and commissioned you in Christ. 
And so I come back to that opening question. When were you first anointed? Let's finish today's passage. John goes on to say this. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Gives us a little window, doesn't it? Into what's going on in this community. People are trying to lead them astray. People are trying to offset them, trying to bump them away from Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, John says, about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has been taught you, remain in him. This is important to understand. This anointing that John's talking about is not a claim that we have nothing to learn anymore. I think we're all aware that we do. There's lots of gaps that can still be filled. Um, you know, it's not as though we're claiming to have complete and total knowledge of who God is and what, what life's all about. No. What it means is this. When we've got Jesus, we've got everything we need. In Christ, we have everything we need to know God and to love others. The Apostle Paul used the very uh, same ideas. He used different language, but to say the very same thing to uh, the Colossian people when he's talking about another group of Christians, uh, positively talking about them, he says this. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Listen to this. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then Paul concludes saying, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Christ, Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's, it's like both John and Paul are saying, we've been given the gift, the gift of Jesus himself, and now he is in us, and we can spend our whole lifetime unwrapping it, discovering the vast treasures wowed by the intricate beauty, the amazing goodness, the mind-blowing glory and power of the one who is our Savior and our friend. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is all that. And we've got it all when we've got Jesus. He's the real deal. He's everything we need to be in real relationship with God. And just as Paul's concerned that they not be deceived by fine sounding arguments, John writes what he does about these antichrists who are trying to lead them astray. See, it's not actually that different today, is it? The average person, kind of the everyday common follower of Jesus like you and I, we come to know Jesus. We entrust our lives to him as we discover what he has done and who he is. We're brought into relationship with him by the Holy Spirit. But truth be told, we often feel like we don't know very much. There's so much more to learn and discover. And while that is true, what John wants us to know is it's not that the truth is somewhere out there from some esoteric group or some elitist knowledge. No, it's rather that we've been given the gift of Jesus in whom is all truth. 
We don't need to be distracted or diminishing from Jesus to discover truth. Rather, we need to remain in him, to lean more closely into him, to grow in our relationship and intimacy with him and discover that he is everything that we need. We may feel like very humble servants, but when we have Jesus, we've got everything. And so John concludes with the right challenge. He says this, now, dear children, continue in him. And the language there is remain in him, abide in him, stay with him, hold on to him, Jesus, so that when he appears, referring to the end when he really does come, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Why? Because we will have been with him all along. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This is powerful, life-changing truth, friends. I hope you receive it today. What matters most? It turns out that what matters most is actually a who, and that who is Jesus. Don't let anyone lead you astray or distract you by fine-sounding arguments that would lead you to diminish or downplay the significance, the centrality of Jesus. Well, <clears throat> let's conclude. There are at least two ways that this truth gets challenged that I think are relevant for us. I'll unpack them a little bit more um, using the prefix anti, like antichrist. Because the truth is, even in the original Greek, there's kind of two meanings to this word. There's anti meaning against, against Jesus, but there's also anti meaning like second, like a deputy that would replace his commander if his commander died, you know what I mean? And so what we discover in the word anti is the first one can be ways that we discover even today where people are trying to actually tear down who Jesus is and say he's not that important or say he's not really the son of God or he wasn't really a man. Whatever um, direct opposition that takes, maybe from someone who was a Christian and now isn't anymore and is trying to rip down people's faith. Or, or maybe there's other religions that want to honor Jesus but not admit who he is. This can be false teaching or heresy or just bad theology. There can be ways that come directly against the clear teaching of Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. And John calls that out really clearly here. But there's a secondary way that's more subtle. And that is the idea that something would subtly vie to perhaps add something to Jesus, to subvert his utter sufficiency, to say to you, hey, that's all fine. You can believe that about Jesus, and that's great. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is who he says he was. But you know what? To really follow Jesus, you now need to add something to it. You need to, you need to do this extra thing. You need to follow this extra rule. They add something to Jesus as though Jesus himself, as the atoning sacrifice of our sins, as the truly anointed one, isn't quite enough for what you need to flourish in life or to be in relationship with God. And in both senses of this word, John speaks to us clearly today by saying, no, what matters most is Jesus, and he is all that we need. As we conclude today, I want to offer you two applications. I don't do this very often to you, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to offer you the same two applications that I offered last week. Now, I know some of you are probably groaning a bit and thinking, oh, what are you doing? Did you just get lazy and run out of time? Maybe, but no. 
The two applications I offered last week, I offer to you again this week, and that is this. John's command is that we remain in Christ. And as I've been mulling and praying and reflecting, as I've been thinking about you, thinking about you men, women, I've been thinking about your kids. I've realized that what really needs to happen for us as the Erickson Covenant Church, for anyone who is joining us online right now and is trying to understand who Jesus is and what the next steps are, I believe that this invitation, this command to remain in him, to remain in Jesus who is utterly sufficient for us, means that we need to respond in two key ways. The first is to grow in our spiritual practices. That is to be daily reading scripture, to be meditating upon it and memorizing it, to be sitting with Jesus, remaining in Jesus very intentionally and very concretely on a daily level. And what I want to do is up the ante a little bit today and say this, I invite you, especially those of you for whom this is new, but also for those of you who practice these things for a long time, here's what I challenge you to do. Write out a plan for the next month that increases the intimacy and intentionality around this practice, these practices that you have. Perhaps you've been doing the same thing for a long time and you need to take it to another level. Perhaps this is brand new to you and you just need to make a, 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 just a concrete plan that you're going to follow for the next month. So I invite you to write that plan out, to get detailed about it, and then to go one step further, to share that plan with someone. It might be your spouse. It, it might be a, a, a friend from far away. It might be a neighbor. It might be someone that uh, you've been connecting with online over Zoom might be someone you know really well or someone you just met, but I invite you to share your plan with them because you know that can be really inspiring for them too. I believe that as we share this together, we can encourage each other to be more deliberate about growing in our life with Christ. The truth is you have been anointed to know Jesus. You know him. And so to grow in him through these spiritual practices is so significant. The second one is that we would walk in spiritual friendship. That we would deliberately seek out one person with whom we can have intentional conversations about our spiritual life. Where we can ask one another the question, how goes your walk? Now, for some of you, that is awkward and that is new. And I'm continuing to have conversations uh, about how we can do this with more intentionality as a community. I want to challenge you to take this seriously. We met on Zoom um, this, this week, uh, a number of us to talk about this, and I'm going to offer something like this again so that we can keep bringing this question back. How do we grow? How do we set up? How do we pursue spiritual friendships? How do we overcome the awkwardness of talking about our walk with Christ? I want to make one small qualifier here. Some of you are thinking, well, I'll just talk to my spouse. I hope you talk to your spouse about how you're doing spiritually. I really do. I hope that's part of your life together. But for this particular walk, I'm actually inviting you to consider walking with someone other than your spouse. Walk with your spouse. Talk about your spiritual life. Pray together, please do. But I'm actually asking you to be intentional about connecting with someone 
else in spiritual friendship. And I want to overcome something here too, just as I close. Sometimes we think, well, because we can't get together over coffee right now, we can't do it. You know, there's actually a long history in the Christian church of, I want to say, virtual spiritual friendship. And that is actually, you can read them. There's a long history of people sharing in spiritual friendship through good old-fashioned letter writing. C.S. Lewis maintained tremendous correspondence in spiritual friendship with people. Others through history have done so. And so if they can do it through old-fashioned letters, we can do it over Zoom or Skype or FaceTime. We can do it through emails. We can do it by walking socially distanced and when we can, beginning to get together. We can overcome those barriers and grow in spiritual friendship. You're anointed to know. You're anointed to grow. Let's do that. Let's pursue that with intentionality as a church. So, when were you first anointed? Was it when you came to trust in Jesus? Yeah. Was it when you were baptized? Sure. Was it when you were filled with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. You are in Christ, our anointed head. And therefore, we have this anointing to be in Christ and to flourish in Christ as he intended. You might feel inadequate. What strikes me when we watch The Crown is how inadequate and ill-equipped and stupid and foolish Queen Elizabeth felt, at least how it's depicted in The Crown, when she now took on the weight of The Crown in this history and this tradition. She felt completely and totally and utterly inadequate, bearing the weight of her family to serve something greater than her. And friends, I mean no disrespect to our sovereign monarch, but if that was true of her, how much more true is it of us? We who stand anointed on our heads, our feet, our hands, our, our breast, how, how much more is it true of us who stand anointed by the Holy One of God, creator of the universe, redeemer of the world through Christ? He has anointed us, friends. We may not have horse-drawn carriages today, but maybe someday we will. You and I, anointed in Christ, we can be so grateful, so excited to know that we are in him and that he is calling us forward. As we go to our final song today, I hope that you can sing out the truth of these words that it is in Christ alone that we stand and he is enough. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.